Welcome to Opus Private Clients Wealthstyle Podcast. All of the material discussed on our podcasts have specific themes, and that's to move your wealth and lifestyle forward, increase your purpose, and provide you with clarity and confidence. Opus's mantra is always forward. We have found that regardless of one's wealth, moving your lifestyle forward is the number one priority for our clients. On our podcasts, we'll share our rich 35 years of experience in designing strategies, share clients' experiences, and introduce resources that have positively impacted our clients. We trust that you will enjoy our direct, transparent, and realistic approach to positively impacting the quality of you and your family's lives. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to the Opus Private Client Wealth Style Podcast. My name is Yvonne Watanabe. Hope all is well. Uh, we have a great guest on today, Alex Azwahe. What's going on, Alex? How are you, man? Hey, good morning, Yvonne. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Excited to have you on. Alex is our internal investment specialist here at the firm um, with a huge passion in equities and taking care of our clients. And I'm really, really excited to have you on. Before we start, why don't you just kind of tell the audience a little bit about yourself, tell them a little bit about what we're going to talk about today. Sure. Thanks for the kind introduction. So um, just a little bit of background about me. I grew up in the Westchester, New York area, found my way into private wealth out of college, graduating from NYU and started my, my career at an Ameriprise private wealth office. And then after a couple of years there, joined the Opus team. And now I've been here for the better part of five years now, really uh, helping you and you know, our team members build out our practice. And my, you know, my main specialties here at at Opus is really to focus on two key aspects, one of them being equities and uh, their involvement in our financial planning process. And, and you know the topic that we'll be discussing today on equity awards is going to be a significant portion of our planning that we do with our clients. So, you know, I think we agreed that it'd be a great topic to speak on today. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's it's a conversation we've been having a ton over the last couple of weeks, months, and years, uh, specifically as you know, our client base grows in the tech uh, and, and sort of um, in retail space. And one of the major ways that folks seem to be getting compensated these days are equity awards, right? So after you and I talked about it, we thought this would be a great way for us to pass out, pass on your knowledge, our knowledge to our existing clients, but also our network, you know, because this conversation is always happening, right? What the heck did my company just send me in terms of compensation? And right. what does this terminology mean? And how do I even make sense of it? Right. So I, I'm, sure. I'm excited about sharing this topic today. So before we kick it off or, you know, so we can kick it off. Why don't you just explain to the audience, you know, what equity awards are? Yeah. So equity awards are a form of compensation that can be given to you by your company that is typically a reflection or share of the company that you work for. So different than cash, it is an actual piece of the company. There's a variety of different forms and ways to grant it, vesting schedules, but quite simply, it's just a piece of the company um, that they're giving to you in return for working for them. And that is the basics of it. There are many different types forms and different consequences of the type of compensation that you get that we'll dive into. Yeah. And we're seeing it again, specifically in the tech space. For those wondering, why would why would a company want to give equity versus giving normal base salary plus bonus, you know, income? Sure. 
There are a couple of reasons. Um, one of them being it's a little bit easier to give a piece of a company that has a potential value than cash, especially if cash is strapped. So for those in the pre-IPO or really the growing tech companies, it, it may be easier from an accounting perspective for a company to give you the potential value of a share of the company rather than the cash on hand. Secondly, and, and one of the most important things to note is that the majority of these equity awards come attached with a vesting schedule. So if we were to use an example that you work for you know, a company and that company grants you 10,000 shares or 10,000 RSUs, we'll delve into what that means later, and you have a vesting schedule associated. What that means is that you're getting 10,000 shares, but they're not free and clear yours from the moment you receive them. They will become yours free and clear over a period of time predetermined by the company. So it's an incentive for you to stay on with the company, and it's an incentive for them to keep you on from both a compensation standpoint. They're not using cash, and they also are essentially tying you down for a couple of years while you're waiting for that value of the equity to become fully yours. Yeah, and we're seeing it you know, more and more and more you know, people making job decisions and career decisions based off right. of how much is vested and unvested. So having that uh, a, a really strong knowledge of what's available to you and what you have on your balance sheet is, is super important. Why don't we kind of dive into You already mentioned one type of common structure of equity awards, uh, RSUs. So explain to the audience a little bit about what RSUs are, how they work. You know, why, why don't we dive into that? Yeah, so RSUs is one of the most common forms of equity compensation, typically granted by a company that's already, you know, beyond the major growth targets of an IPO or early funding. These are uh, more common in the well-established companies. So an RSU is a restricted stock unit. And what that means in plain English is essentially it's a share of the company. So let's say Amazon is giving you a thousand RSUs. They're giving you a thousand shares of Amazon stock that's going to vest over a period of time. That's great. And how does it work sort of tax-wise? So, you know, I get how, you know, company gives me a salary you know, mm -hmm. I know exactly what my tax, how to calculate the taxes on that. Explain to the audience a little bit about the tax treatment on RSUs and how that would work. So when we're looking at your, you know, your typical pay stub, you're getting your gross number, your gross salary, and then you're getting your ordinary income taxes deducted from that. It works really similarly for an RSU with a vesting schedule. So, um, you know, let's use an example that I, I, I'm going to keep consistent throughout this conversation. Let's say you work for a company and they give you 10,000 RSUs. And that's over a period of a four-year vesting schedule where every year on an anniversary of the grant date, 25% is going to vest of the award. So that means one year after the initial grant date of the 10,000 shares, you will vest 2,500 RSUs of that company. What that means is at that point in time, those are yours free and clear with a little bit of an exception, which is the tax component, which is why we're having the conversation. Taxes can be withheld on an RSU basis a variety of different ways, but the most common is on that vesting period where you are designated to have 2,500 shares vested to you, the company will withhold a portion of those shares to settle up your tax bill. It'll be roughly whatever your ordinary income tax deductions would be off your pay stub. So instead of getting 2,500 in that first vest, you'll probably get 
22, 21, you'll have a slightly reduced number because those RSUs that you did not receive will settle up your tax bill. Got it. So, you know, plainly a client can use that stock that they've just been granted to help offset the taxes, right? Up front. Yeah, it'll it'll happen on their behalf most yeah. commonly. So, a very it's very rare that a company will do will do grants of or vesting and not account for taxes. Again, the most common method is just to take a portion of the vested stock and settle up. Another commonly uh, seen method of accounting for the taxes is they will simply just withhold additionally on your W-2 income. So on your pay stub, you may see uh, a deduction for W-2 income related to your RSUs vesting. Got it. So we've talked about the taxes upon grant, right? Mm -hmm. Investing. Now, uh, share a little bit about what happens when I go to sell the stock someday. Right. So this is where it's very similar to as if you made an investment outside of RSUs. Uh, it's the discussion of short-term versus long-term capital gains. So let's take a step back and talk about generally if you were to buy a share of a company. Let's say that share is worth $10 when you buy it, and then it's $15 when you go to sell it. Now, depending on how long the time or how much time has passed, between when you bought and sold the stock, you will be taxed differently on that growth. If it's been held for less than a year, you will realize what's called short-term capital gains, which most commonly is just your ordinary income bracket, so whatever your top-line tax bracket that you fall into. That's that's what happens if you sell within one year of buying the share. If you sell after holding the share for at least a year, you're gonna realize what's called long-term capital gains. And that is typically at a tax advantage rate. You can potentially, depending on what income bracket you fall in, it might be 15%, 20%, you know, as high as 23.8%. Generally, that's the taxes associated to investments. You'll find that same treatment as far as RSUs, because once they vest, those shares are yours and free and clear, and there is already a cost basis associated to those shares. So what you're going to pay the taxes on is going to be the difference between the share price on the day of vesting, because it's already been accounted for on the ordinary income deduction side. It's going to be the difference between the cost basis and what you sell that share at. And again, the key important thing here is the the time elapsed between receiving the vested shares and when you go to sell them in the market. Yeah, that's great. I, I think you did a great job of explaining the RSU side there. Um, we often get questions of the difference between RSU, the difference and the similarities between RSUs and an employee stock purchase plan. Uh, can you give some insight there? Yeah, so they're pretty similar. Employee stock purchase plans are voluntary programs that you can contribute to on an after-tax basis, typically uh, from your pay stub, and it allows you to buy shares in the company that you work for at an advantaged rate. Typically how that's structured is that you have uh, a period of time commonly seen as six months where you are constantly contributing into this bucket of money. And at the end of a six month segment, the, the program will allow you to buy the stock price or rather the, the stock at the lower price of either ends of that segment. So at the low of the six month, if that's at the beginning 
or at the end of the segment. On top of that, a company may also give you a discount, maybe somewhere in the realm of 15 to 20%. So a lot of growth-oriented investors take the advantage of that 15 to 20% discount and contribute into those ESPP programs. And the reason that they're similar to RSUs, they're another way to be aligned on the same side as your employer on the equity side and to get some sort of discount or incentive to contribute. The key difference is... Um, Obviously, one is voluntary. You can choose to contribute from your pay sub or not. And the other is the vesting schedule. So instead of, you know, having all of your shares dominated by your vesting schedule, the vesting schedule for an ESBP might be slightly different because they may choose to apply it or not, depending on the discount that they give you upon purchase. Yeah. yeah so I, I think really understanding the vesting schedule, regardless of the way your equity awards um, are kind of laid out to you, is critical to making any kinds of decisions, but also really having a strong understanding of those dates, right? I, that that just drives a lot of the conversation yeah. as to, you know, what taxes are going to look like, but also what, what your ownership stake looks like, right? Absolutely. And a key thing to, to keep in mind is that while you know that if you were to stay at a company, uh, for a period of time and you know you may have some unvested RSUs or some unvested equity coming your way if it's not in your pocket you still have to operate from a perspective of knowing that there is a chance you may not have access or rely on those assets um, the same that you would rely on cash in the bank account that you have or RSUs already deposited into your brokerage account so yeah. you you have to be aware of the growth opportunity but you also have to be aware of the potential liquidity today Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so you spelled out RSUs, you spelled out uh, the ESPP program. Why don't we talk a little bit about stock options? Because I think that's another major way that we're seeing equity awards uh, get sent to clients and folks um, that's of interest. So I know there are several different types, but just kind of break down options for, for, for the audience. Yeah, let's, uh, let's use an example. I feel like that's the easiest way to illustrate the point. An option is different from a share because it is the right to buy a share of stock at a predetermined price. So while a share, you just buy the one share, you know, let's say it costs you 10 bucks, an option is the right to buy that same share at a predetermined price. Now, let's say that price on this given option, what they would call the strike price, uh, it'll also be called the exercise price, or the grant price and some of our other examples later on, but let's say that strike price is $5. You pay $5, you get a share of stock. Now the stock might have a fair market value higher than $5. It might be $10, it might be 15. You've essentially on paper made a great transaction where you're paying for five, but you're getting 10 or 15 back. That is the basic understanding of how an option works. It is a right to buy a stock or a share of stock at a predetermined price. Great. You know, I know that there are two major types. Uh, let's talk about the NSOs because I think that's the most common that we see. Would you say that's the most common that we see coming across our table? So the most, it depends really, it, it depends on the industry that we're looking at. So let's just take a, a high level view of the two major classes of options that we see used as equity compensation. 
there are a class called non-qualified stock options, commonly referred to as NSOs on a shorthand. Those can be paid to employees of a company, freelancers, directors, doesn't have to be specific to an employee constantly in employment at that company. Now, these are, they're different from ISOs. So ISOs are gonna be referred to as incentive stock options. And now the key differences between the two are how taxes work upon exercise. So let's go back to my example. Let's say you have the right to buy a share. The, the doing of so, of, of actually exercising that right is what's called an exercise of an option. So when you do that on the non-qualified stock option side, the way that you have to account for taxes is you're going to pay ordinary income tax immediately between the spread of the grant price or the strike price that we mentioned earlier and the actual fair market value of that share. So let's use the example that we had already discussed. Let's say you have the right to buy the option or right to buy the share that itself is a defined option at $5. But the fair market value of that share of stock is 15. The spread between the two is 10, $10. You're going to have to pay ordinary income tax on those $10. Now, how this works in practice in an equity awards perspective is that you're going to have to pay that spread on every option that's available to be exercised. So if we have, to use some similar numbers from before, 10,000 non-qualified stock options granted to you by a company, and we're using those same fair market value prices and strike prices, so five and 15, you're going to have to pay that spread of $10 on every available vested option. So in year one, if we're following that four-year vesting schedule, you now have 2,500 non-qualified stock options that you can exercise. Upon exercising them, you're going to owe the 2,500 shares times the $10 spread, you know, that's going to be $25,000 in ordinary income that you now have to account taxes for and will be withheld upon exercising. Perfect. Great, great explanation. I think that's fairly clear for folks. How does it differ from an ISO? Yeah. So an ISO is different and First off, you're going to see them in slightly different contexts. ISOs are typically granted in that tech space, in these growing companies, pre-IPO, shortly post-IPO. ISOs have a tax advantage, a potential tax advantage upon exercising. So when you exercise an ISO, unlike a non-qualified stock option, you do not owe any taxes immediately, potentially. And I'll get into why, what that potentially means. But upon exercising of an ISO, you do not owe any taxes immediately, ordinary income or otherwise. The real tax implication for an ISO comes upon sale. And that is determined by a variety of factors. You know, it depends how long it's been since the initial grant date of the ISO. Uh, it also matters how long it's been since you exercised the ISO itself. So, you know, you, you've utilized your right to pay for a share at $5, it's now 15. We need to know, 
upon sale how long it's been since you decided to do that trade and exercise that right. Those components together will determine if you either owe short-term capital gains, so ordinary income tax, or long-term capital gains if you've held it on for a sufficient period of time. And the way that that breaks down is so long as the exercised option or the share that's been granted to you after utilizing the option has been has been held for at least one year and it's been at least two years since the initial grant date of the ISO, you can now factor those as long-term capital gains. Before then, it would be factored as ordinary income tax. And we can get into the potential ramifications uh, in a minute. So Alex, I think it's worth repeating what you just mentioned between the difference between short-term and long-term capital gains. I think it's something that we've had to repeat a bunch of times. So um, mm -hmm. go through it one more time because I think the audience will, will appreciate it. Yeah, why don't we, let's use two examples. One showing short-term capital gains, like what the process would be to realize short-term capital gains. And then one showing how you would realize long-term capital gains. Perfect. So let's say you have a vested ISO. So you have the ability right now to exercise it at any point in time. By exercising, you are saying, I'm going to pay X strike price. So let's use our, continue our example, our $5 strike price. And I'm going to receive uh, the $15 share of this company that uh, we are working for. If I then go after exercising that option to sell that same option before both of the following conditions are met, before I've held on to the share itself for at least a year, or before it's been at least two years since the initial grant of that ISO, I will have to pay short-term gains, or again, more commonly referred to as ordinary income on it. That's the short-term bucket. If I have, new example, a vested ISO that at any time I can exercise, I pay my $5 to exercise the one option, receive a share back at 15, and I hold on to it so that both of those conditions that I described are met. So it's been at least a year since I've exercised the option. It's been at least two years since I've been granted the original ISO. I can now realize that gain which is the difference between the strike price that I paid and the current fair market value of the share, which I've kept consistent at 15, but it could continue to grow. I will now pay long-term capital gains on that. And again, more common than not, that is the tax advantage play here. Yeah, I, th that, I think that's a perfect way to explain it. I think the audience will definitely appreciate that again, because it's fairly complex. Um, but we're getting that question two to three times a week. So I think it's certainly worthwhile to explain. You know, one of the common considerations that we, that we talk about is the alternative minimum tax, AMT tax. Can you explain a little bit about how that works as it relates to, uh, as it relates to these equity awards? Of course. That is the, the reason that potentially uh, no tax consequence comes up so often in the ISO conversation. So one thing you have to factor that is factored in when exercising an ISO is the adjustments to the AMT calculation. What is AMT? AMT is a, it, it represents an alternative minimum tax. 
Essentially, it is a calculation that's made when your CPA goes to file your taxes for a given year to see if there is a minimum tax due depending on certain financial decisions you've made throughout the year. Depending on those certain decisions, you may have what's called an AMT adjustment or adjustments. Those adjustments are factored into a calculation and then what the alternative minimum tax spits out as your minimum tax bill you have to pay out of pocket the difference between your ordinary income tax bill and that alternative minimum tax. How does that factor into our conversation? ISO exercises will have an adjustment to the AMT. It's what we call the bargain element. The bargain element is what is the strike price or the grant price of the ISO that was given to you versus the fair market value of the share on the day that you exercise the option. And to give you an example to kind of illustrate the point, let's continue to use this 5 and 15 number. I have an ISO that I can exercise at $5, and on that day, the fair market value is 15. The bargain element that's going to be uh, counted as an adjustment to the AMT is that $10 spread. If you exercise enough of those ISOs with a large enough spread, you're going to have an AMT, a significant AMT adjustment calculation, and you may have to pay AMT tax on top of your ordinary income tax bill. Yep. And I think this is one of the major considerations that folks need to make because for some normal income employees, they would never fall into AMT tax. But when they make the decision around these ISOs, AMT comes into play and they don't necessarily know what's factored in or when they when they find out what their tax bill looks like, they could have made some changes when they made those decisions earlier to help lower their tax bill or help make a different tax, educated decision around the taxes. Um, right. You know, I just think it's it's such an important conversation to be having. It it is. And, you know, it's really key that this is commonly seen in in the tech space again. But really, when you're in, you know, to throw a number out there, the first 500, the first thousand of a company and you're getting paid a significant portion in equity awards, specifically ISOs. And the reason being is if you join a hot tech company and your strike price is on the order of cents, like 80 cents or 90 cents, and you know, fast forward two years and your stock is now trading at 90 or $100. Yep. That's a large spread. And depending on the number of ISOs granted to you, that can have significant ramifications. The, the layperson or you know, the employee may think, oh, I'm a millionaire on paper. I mean, that could be true if he goes to exercise and sell the same day or make his decisions based off of that, those ISOs that he has. But the AMT is could be a very unexpected item for him to deal with come tax time. Yep, a- absolutely, absolutely. And again, as we factor in these conversations on a yearly basis with our clients, we're having to do some of these conversations, do these calculations, help their CPAs, right. really make decisions around how much should I actually exercise because it, it gets factored in. Right. You don't just want to take all. Typically, you don't just want to take all of the money all at one time. You really have to make a a concerted effort and figure out how does it build into the entire plan, which, again, is where we sort of come in there. 
you know, what are some of the other considerations that folks need to be making as they weigh employment offers or, um, mm-hmm. you know, really try to understand how this can factor into their future wealth creation? Yeah. So the really key word to describe or to consider when you're weighing options or different employment options with different types of compensation, some equity-based, some more cash-based, is that this is all potential. Nothing is fixed in stone. An ISO or any option can go to zero, really depending on what happens with the company. And RSU is different. Um, RSU is even if the option goes to zero or you know a similar option priced at the same fair market value may go to zero, at least you have the value of that share. And this all is important to when you're making decisions for you and your family, deciding, you know, do I take a compensation package that is more cash-based while the potential I know is more limited on the upside, but I it's more guaranteed versus do I take another option, which is more equity focused? My growth potential is very large, but I may not realize all of that. To, to throw in a metaphor, I guess it's the difference between guaranteed and total compensation in, in some major league sports contracts, right? You yeah. have the potential for a lot of upside, but you don't know if the, all of that is going to be guaranteed. Yeah, and, and I think one of the things and feedback that we give our clients as they're going through sort of a negotiation process is, um, how this compensation comes into play. Does the, does the company have any you know, wiggle room on the vesting schedule, right? Can I get some vested earlier than later, right? Instead of that right. 25 over four, maybe I can get a third, a third, a third over three, right? Is that something that they'd be willing to negotiate with me? Can I get a little bit more cash up front, you know, and, and maybe my bonus is all in stock, you know, there's just different ways to structure it. And, and companies mm-hmm. seem to be a little bit more reasonable as they're having these conversations, but people really need to be aware of what works for them in their household. You know, I know, as you said, some people are a little bit more risk averse, so they don't want to take that chance. They'd rather have the cash regardless of what the future, you know, um, wealth could look like. Or some people are want to risk it all because they believe in the company and are willing to take lesser compensation for the future potential. I mean, if you were an early employee of Amazon, for example, you know you 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 would have been much better off taking less catch up front and and a lot more uh, stock. But right. it's uh, it's all part of the conversation. But I think folks need to really understand how it how it works for them. Yeah, and and the one point. On the vesting schedule, we've been using this kind of running example of a four-year vesting schedule where every anniversary you can get 25%. While that's very common, that's not the only vesting schedule out there. It might be four years, three years, five years. It may be a one-year cliff, so a majority of the or you know, a portion of it is based off of a year cliff. And then there and after, every month you get a little, little uh, you know, one-twelfth or one 24th, whatever the remaining period is, you know, as kind of an income stream. It's purposely made to be a little confusing. And the main reason there is that companies are using this as a tool to incentivize you to, it's not like they're going to outline everything, say, this is exactly the moment that you could leave this company and have X amount of equity in your name. It's purposely made to be a little dense. There's a lot of legalese, but you know, again, in reviewing it with an advisor or just kind of spelling everything out in front of you, it's really helpful to have a better sense of where things remain vested or unvested and how that factors into your overall financial planning. 
Awesome. Yeah, Alex, I really appreciate the conversation as always. Um, before we sign off, why don't you, is there one thing that you want to make sure that the audience takes away from our conversation? Is there one thing that we talked about that, or that we didn't talk about that you want to make sure that they leave with? I would just make sure that if you do receive any sort of equity compensation or equity awards, keep all the paperwork because that's what we will always refer to that the initial documentation uh, will contain all of the information needed for your advisor, your tax planner, or even yourself to be able to decipher the ultimate pathway of how this equity will play out. So I would certainly emphasize that whatever documentation is given to you, if you find yourself in this situation, keep a hold of it, keep it organized. It's going to come into play um, at some point, and it is you know, much harder to find going backwards than just being forward thinking and keeping it handy. Awesome. I appreciate it. And, you know, as always, the listening audience, feel free to reach out to us directly, any of the Opus team members. We'd be happy to go through um, what your equity awards package looks like if you need it, to, you know, determine in a little bit further detail. Alex, I appreciate the time as always, man. It's been great. Uh, the audience, I'm sure, will get a lot out of this. Awesome. Thank you for having me. And uh, thank you to our listening audience for tuning in. As always, you can subscribe below uh, to be notified when our future podcasts come out. And it, it still has access to the library of all of our previous episodes. We hope you enjoyed it. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Style Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This material contains the current opinions of the presenters, but not necessarily those of Guardian or its subsidiaries, and such opinions are subject to change without notice. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting, or relocation advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Ivan Watanabe and Alejandro Azuaje are registered representatives and financial advisors of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Yvonne is a financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Opus Private Client LLC is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Opus Private Client LLC is not registered in any state or with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission as a registered investment advisor. Yvonne's California Insurance License Number 0H44206, Compliance Approval 2021-124581, expires July 2023.